You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. I'm speaking with Jeff and Ann Vandermeer. Jeff Vandermeer's latest book is Book Life. Ann Vandermeer is the editor of Weird Tales. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having Thanks. us. Okay. Now, <laughs> Jeff, your, your new book, Book Life, is a really unusual look at, at writing. It's the, it's the most uh, unique, I think, book about writing that, that I've ever seen. What decided you, led you to decide to take that tack? Well, um, I read a lot of, uh, of writing guides, first of all, and, and I find 90% of them to not be useful because they're not specific enough, or they rely too much on anecdotal evidence. Uh, you know, an author gets to a certain point in their career a certain way, and they, they uh, kind of enshrine that as process rather than habit. And so that was one thing. I wanted to create a specific guide. I've been thinking about it for a while. I've been thinking about doing a, a guide on craft, but then I thought about new media and the way that the publishing world is changing and how I had been there from the beginning and also taken advantage of some of the opportunities that new media present. And I thought, you know, one thing that I never see in writing guides of any kind is integration of information about the Internet and how you use the Internet as a writer uh, into the whole book. You always see a section like, on the internet, <laughs> which is kind of crazy at this point because it should be integrated with everything. So in book life, you know, you have, it's divided into public and private book life sections to denote the difference between things that support your career and things that support your creativity, along with a gut check section to make sure you're actually in balance and, and, and you're focused on the right things. Um, but every single section is suffused with new media, like even the envy section talks about, you know, things you can do to block off, you know, uh, information about your rivals if you if you really have a problem dealing with the fact that other people are being successful while at the same time quoting from people like Francis Bacon because Envy's been around for a long time for writers and so th that that's what it does it, it takes traditional topics as well as uh, as as new media topics and kind of well melds them together and uh, as an as an editor for Weird Tales and also as somebody who's involved in Jeff's life could you talk about you know your experience of book life from your your perspective. Well, I actually have a funny story I'm going to tell you, and I hope I don't embarrass my husband too badly. It's okay. But Go during ahead. the time period when he was trying to finish, well, it was a crazy time because he was finishing the manuscript for book life. He was finishing the manuscript for Finch. I mean, two books at the same time, one nonfiction, one, one fiction. And he was getting ready to fly over to Australia to teach Clarion. So all this stuff was happening. He was just going crazy. And he comes up to me, he goes, Ann, Ann, I'm going crazy, I have so much, blah, blah, blah. And I said, I have just the book for you, something that will really help you figure out how to balance what you're doing. And he goes, really, really, where is it? And I go into the, to the bedroom and I pulled out the ark for book life. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I actually do talk a little bit about that in the book. I talk about the ways in which my own process has broken down as an example of how you can get out of balance. Uh, and even talked about some of the aspects of writing Finch and writing two books at once. Um, and, and tried to use the anecdotal evidence in such a way that it supports process, you know. Mm -hmm. Now, um, let, let's talk about Finch because Finch is a, is a wonderful, wonderful book. And it, it it, once again, you manage to 
write a book that exists in its own universe and in its, uh, you create, each book you write seems to create its own genre and its own place in the reader's mind so that once we enter your prose, we're, we're there and nowhere else. And, and I want you to talk about this because this book is different from the other books that are set in Ambergris. It is, and um, I, uh, when I thought about, you know, in 1998, I really kind of planned out vaguely what I was going to do. The plan was always to approach the city from a different direction, the, 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 the imaginary city of Ambergris that these books are set in. And so the first one is very metafictional, City of Saints and Mad Men, and, and has some traditional tropes as well. The second one is more of a Nabokov uh, approach to fiction or a Prostian uh, approach to fiction. And this one combines elements of noir, uh, the spy thriller, uh, I'm in tr incredibly indebted to John Le Carre for uh, what I would say a, a kind of tutelage on the job, uh, reading all of his work uh, over a period of a couple of years, uh, because I think I think he's just an absolute master at, at creating depth and tension. In, in addition to um, a, a narrative that really flows forward in in, in a relatively uh, relentless way. Uh, so uh, I did have to retool my style as well because it, I did decide that I to, to capture kind of the noir essence, which kind of is what binds everything together and, and drives the plot that, that I would go with sentence fragments and try to still do them in a kind of a lyrical way. And so it took me a long time, that was the thing that took the longest, was to kind of retool my style. Oddly enough, <laughs> because it's not a very, you know, it's a kind of a very commercial project. Doing a, a Predator tie-in novel helped a lot because it showed me how to cut scenes differently. It gave me some other options. It was kind of like a playground in which to test out a lot of different ways of looking at fiction that I hadn't and then reapply them to something that, that maybe had a little more depth to it. So. And when, when Jeff's working on a, on a fictional project, does, does he talk to you about it? Or? Oh, yes, he does. He does. And um, depending on where he is in, in, in the cycle, he'll show me some of it, or sometimes he'll just talk about it and talk through scenes with me and kind of, it's like he's working stuff out in his head sometimes when he's talking about it and because certain scenes could go this way or go that way. So he talks to me about it and then figures it out from that. And um, it's really kind of cool to be living with the writer. Well, it's, it's, it's actually kind of unique because I can't tell anybody else <coughs> what's going on or I lose the story. Mm. And it's the only person I can tell and I still want to tell the story. Otherwise, I feel like I've already told it. Um, so it's really, it's really great to have someone where I can do that and it doesn't affect it. No, I know exactly what you mean. That when, Sometimes if you have a story you want to write, it, if you tell somebody it, it just, the all desire to write it just it, it evaporates. Right, because you've already done it. Yeah. Now, Anne, um, as you're working with Jeff on his novels, you're also editing Weird Tales. Mm -hmm. And I wonder how much feedback there is between that for you, how much your work you know, your work with Jeff and your experience with him on novels, how much that informs, you know, your selections for Weird Tales, your approach to it? Well, one of, one of the things about reading Slush is you have so much that you have to go through, and you're looking for something specific that, to fit into the magazine, but sometimes you come across things that are absolutely magnificent and wonderful, but that don't fit into the magazine. So one of the benefits of working with Jeff on all these other outside projects is that sometimes I find something in my slush pile for Weird Tales that doesn't fit for Weird Tales, but yet it fits with one of my other projects. And so I'll pull it out and go, Jeff, what do you think about this? And this could be this, and this could be that. Sometimes I'll even find something there that sparks a brand new project that we can work on together. And so that's really a marvelous thing, too. That uh, Working on a project together as a husband and wife uh, team 
uh, that seems fraught with, with peril. <laughs> Actually, it's really not. It's not because we have different strengths and weaknesses, uh -huh. and our tastes overlap. Mm -hmm. So we have a lot that we um, agree upon. And we, we, set, we set down ground rules ahead of time of how we're going to do things. Like when we're doing an anthology, we um, have a rule where I get one story that no matter what, he can't take it out, and he gets one story that no matter what, I can't take it out. And we do have that, and then we also have um, a choice of, um, you know, taking one story out that we don't, you know, we have yeah. a, le a love and a hate is what we have. It's kind of like a hate. jury selection. And, yes, and actually, it's like a jury selection, exactly. <laughs> I'm, I'm actually, Defense, yeah. prosecution. <laughs> I'm actually <laughs> rethinking that only because invariably the one that I like that Anne doesn't like is the one story in the anthology that everybody hates. So, whereas the one that Anne likes that I didn't like is universally... It's, it's the favorite. It's always <laughs> so, the favorite. So I'm thinking maybe this isn't a good policy, you know, without going into details. But it's good for our, it's good for our relationship, you know. <laughs> we don't fight about anthologies very much, I have to no, say. No, we really don't. We, we don't. But we do have a lot of um, discussions and brainstorming on how we want things to work out. And, and, and I'll, I'll be honest to say that Jeff is the one that has the big ideas. He's the one that comes up with these, you know, we should do this, we should do that, we should do the other. And um, it'll start off as one thing and then it evolves into something else. And then I'm the one that's the nitty gritty details, taking his vision and making it really happen and seeing how that, you know, well, also pulls putting, together. Making sure there's no scope creep, because I'm very famous for scope oh, creep. Oh, definitely. Mm -hmm. I mean, books that balloon from 200 to 300 or 400 pages. And, and that stopped since Anne's been my co-editor. Um, because usually, she, I, I, I mean, except on Last Drink Birdhead, this anthology we did where she went away for a while, so she was on trips or something, and when she came back, there were like 80 contributors. There were 80 contributors, and I um, said, that's so it, that was I'm <laughs> cutting you off. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, with the scope creep, it's not just with books. I mean, Jeff's um, endurance book tour first started off as going to be 48 hours, mm -hmm. and now it's almost six weeks. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> it's usually a good thing. <laughs> You know, we're in really interesting times for uh, the world of fantastic literature. It's it's changing right in front of our eyes in very concrete and obvious ways with the canonization of H.P. Lovecraft, the canonization of the American, you know, fantastic tale by the Library of America. Um, I wonder if you would each talk about how individually and together um, what you feel the elements of the fantastic offer you as writers, as editors, and where you think, do you think that it'll be changing and how? Well, um, I thought about this a lot just because of the Ambergris cycle mm -hmm. and, and thought about, I mean, because I, I've come to the conclusion, I don't think I, I felt this way when I wrote City of Saints, that you really have to have a remarkable amount of the real world in your fantasy for it to be relevant and for it to endure. And this was kind of even driven home by listening to David Drake talk about how his books are, are basically you know, reflections of his experiences in Vietnam. But we don't normally think of, of fantasy as being autobiographical, and yet it's really what's given me the distance to write about the real world. Because even in Finch, for example, with extraordinary rendition, suicide bombers, all this other kind of things, it, it's a way to, to express what I'm feeling about the current environment and, and the history we're going through. Uh, without it being so immediate that I don't have the distance to write about it, just as you would have to have time to write about personal events in your life that were in some way traumatic. And so, uh, you know, something like Finch is able to absorb all that and recontextualize it in a way that it's still relevant um, and, and, and more universal because it's not in one specific time or place. Uh, so I think, I think that's one aspect of fantasy you see. I think you saw that also in China Mieville's City in the City uh, book in, in, to some degree. 
Um, so that, that, that's what excites me about fantasy, is the, the possibility for it to show us something we didn't realize about the real world, even though we're talking about fantastical places. Well, you know, if you think about it, the original storytelling was fantastical. Before there was written books, when people were telling each other stories, they were always stories of fantasy. And um, we got away from that, and I think it's come back, and it's, it's, it's not just this little you know, genre here. I think it's, it's in, invaded everything. When you look at pop culture, you see it everywhere. So um, I think people are drawn to that because it allows them to escape from the regular day-to-day, -day, the high technology, the fast-paced world, and they can just get lost in something like that that's so completely different from their real life and yet still speaks to them emotionally. And, and I think you can do that much more clearly with more imagination and fantasy than you can in realistic fiction. Well, the other thing I would say is that, that the paradigm that's coming forward, and you're talking about like the, the, the Library of America edition and stuff, is, is, is very satisfying in a sense, not because we help make it come true, but that our, our actual philosophy is coming more in line with what is happening out in the world, because our philosophy from day one with these anthologies and with the stuff I did before we did anthologies together was always to combine elements of the mainstream and fantasy to blur the lines between you know these tribal these these tribes that 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 seem to have their own ag not agendas but their territories, um, and that's really what something like the Library of America book is doing. It's 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 bringing the fantastical literature to people who wouldn't necessarily read it if it was in a different format, uh, if they found it in a fantasy anthology that was clearly labeled as such. You know that wasn't from such a prestigious place, and uh, that's always what we've been doing in terms of combining you know having mainstream and and genre authors as they're as they're defined in the same anthologies and then trying to find ways to present the books so that they can be acceptable to both groups and whatnot. So. And, and yet Anne is editing a, a resurrection of Weird Tales, which is the original pulp <laughs> where uh, Lovecraft created his yes. outlaw presence mm -hmm. and, and yeah. essentially essentially was the beginning back then. Mm -hmm. Weird Tales was the begin was the first fence the around first. the ghetto. It was. Well, no, I don't know if it was so much a fence. It was the first magazine of its kind. Mm -hmm. It was the first fantasy magazine of the world because that kind of work was being written and enjoyed, but there wasn't a place for it. Mm -hmm. You know, nobody else was doing that. And I think that, that if you look at, at um, Weird Tales through the years, it's always been, you know, or for, for many years it was on the forefront. It was the, you know, the... the the inspiration for everything else that came after that, you know, all the other magazines, amazing stories, and you know, everything else that came out, it was it was Weird Tales first, and it spawned everything else. Well, talk about Weird Tales now. Um, back then, a lot of the the work in Weird Tales was was really formulaic, and now I think Weird Tales is is closer. Then, if then anything, I think it's closer to McSweeney's than it is to uh, analog. Well, I'm I'm really very quite quite proud of what we've been able to do with Weird Tales because what I wanted it to do is I wanted to again be the leader of and let everybody else follow what we're doing as it was back in the day, and um, but still. I wanted to maintain the traditions and honor the traditions from the 20s and the 30s. And what was really cool about this is that I go out there and people come up to me, young people mostly come up to me, and oh, it's so wonderful what's happening with Weird Tales, and they, they say wonderful things to me, but, but something fantastic happened to me on Thursday night. I, I was introduced to a gentleman that's been collecting Weird Tales since 1937. So I sat down and had a really long conversation with him about it, talking about all his years of collecting and why and how. And, and then finally I asked him the, the question that I was almost afraid to ask. 
I said, well, what do you think of it now? You know, and he turned to me and he goes, it's really great. I love what you're doing with it. And that, that just really pleased me so much. So, so I'm able to, to honor the traditions of the past, please someone who's been a fan for God knows how many years, and yet still bring new people into the fold. Yeah. And that's, that's the whole key there. And, and, and I actually get a, a great kick out of Weird Tales because it's the one project that's in the household that I have absolutely nothing to do with. Mm. So I get to see this finished product that Anne's put together in terms of the fiction and read it for the first time when it's published. And that's just so nice <laughs> to not, you know, not have been involved in the backstory at all. And uh, I mean, I think you're right about the McSweeney's angle of being closer to that than, than Asimov's. And, and that's in part also because of the fact that the nonfiction, everything else is slanted in a certain way. But I also think Anne is, is, is darn good at picking out the next generation. That's, that's really what her signature has always been. She's not impressed by names. It, it, that carries over to the anthologies as well. She doesn't care what someone's bio is. She just has an innate kind of an innate uh, talent for picking uh, a really great weird story and in this context of the 21st century those are stories that are more cross-genre but still have a weird or horror element and I would not at all be surprised uh, if some of those the writers have first stories published by her go on to great things I mean Daniel Abraham published a couple of his first stories in Anne's magazine the and, and even then it was obvious that this was somebody who was going somewhere so um, and that's also why all the, all the new writers are, come up to her, all the conventions, because she's so open to that and, and willing to take a chance in taking their work. So. And yet, at the same time, I still want to have the more established writers whose work that I love right there, right next to them. So you've got to have a mix. You, you know, you mentioned the convention, and, and we're here at the World Fantasy Convention, and I think uh, this is an interesting convention because it seems really highly focused, as they say, like a laser, on, on the literature. I think that world fantasy has always been more about the written word than about the gaming and the other media. I mean, that's, that's part of it, too. But, but the thing about world fantasy is it's, to me, a professional convention, yet at the same time, it's almost like a family reunion because a lot of us are coming together and, and hanging out with the people that we love and enjoy so much that we don't get to see. Well, and also the programming. Uh, I mean, you have a certain uh, number of people who are on the panels who who may in fact come out of academia, uh, which adds a little bit of that to it, as well as the writers and everything else. So you get something that is accessible, I think, to, like if someone in San Jose just decided to, you know, they like fantasy and they came to this convention, um, if they went to the panels, it wouldn't be so stuffy that they would, that they would recoil from it, but they would also learn something at the same time, it would be entertaining. Um, so it, it, it is very concentrated on the, on the literature and, and yet uh, I think kind of uh, welcoming to the general fantasy or, uh, or, or horror reader. And you just said a word I think that's really important to the genre right now and beyond, which is academia, uh, because I think that mm -hmm. this kind of literature in the 21st century is really finally being looked at as something as worthy of the ob being the object of attention mm -hmm. of academia. So. Well, I, I think what's important there is that, um, and this isn't a criticism of anyone, but any time you have like a monopoly system going on, you get an interpretation that is 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 too homogenous, mm -hmm. and so the reason that it's important to have more critics and uh, who are examining this stuff is that you get more opinions about the same types of books. And so what I find exciting is I think over the next ten years, as more and more academics do uh, approach fantasy fiction, is you're going to see reevaluations of books that we already have a set opinion of because of the academics who have written about them before. Um, but we're going to see a whole new generation of, of, of academics from probably outside genre, too, 
giving us their uh, analysis of how all this fits together and, and, and what the worth of these books uh, are. So I think it, you, it'll be very interesting from that standpoint. And also, the, the boundaries are, are so permeated and permeable at this point, mm -hmm. it's becoming very, very difficult to really pin, pin anything in any one place anymore. It is, and I mean, that, that, that's very important for writers' careers because there's no, there's no one center of power. Mm -hmm. um, so if one group isn't that into what you're doing, there's somebody else who is. And so it's great. It, it actually it fosters you know, the big debate about diversity in the field with regard to minorities and women, it, it, it actually, the, the situation is so much better now just because there are so many different outlets and it's very healthy. And you know, uh, one of the things that, that interests me is that um, the two of you have been for a long time at the forefront of independent publishing with the silver web from, from you know, many, many years ago. And I think that uh, now what, we, one of the things we've seen is that independent publishing is, is being is just a hair away from being the most important ass, um, pit segment of publishing. When, when Nightshade Books is publishing the brand new Graham Joyce novel and Random House isn't there, that says something. And when we have these uh, great anthologies like uh, Last Drink Bird's Head and the, the presence of Weird Tales magazines, that uh, says that independent publishing is no longer uh, if it ever was, something that is outside. Well, I think as, as an independent publisher, you have more freedom to take risks and do something that, you, that you're doing for the passion and the love of it, whereas a lot of the larger um, New York houses, they have, to, they have to focus on what's more commercial. And a lot of times what they're doing, same thing as Hollywood oftentimes, is, okay, what sold last year? Let's do it again. So it's like more of the same, more of the same. And I think that, that readers are actually, because they can get it, they want more. And so they seek it outside. And it's, it's much easier now to be able to access books that come out of independent publishers than it used to be because of the advent of the internet. I mean, you can get any book that you want on the internet. You don't have to find it in a bookstore. Before, 20 years ago, when I, when I first started Buzz City Press, if, if I couldn't get my books out there into bookstores, if I didn't have good distribution, I wasn't going to sell them. But now um, you have a lot more opportunities, and that, that's a, a, this is a great place to be. <laughs> well, I was going to say, yeah, um, I think it's very important, especially for mid-list writers, you know, uh, that the distribution channels for indies are so, so good, and, and that's really what the difference is. I mean, a Nightshade book might have an initial print run that's the same as uh, a print run from a large publisher at this point. And it's and it behooves us to remember that Random House was formed because mm -hmm. uh, he I can't remember his name now was it Surf wanted to mm -hmm. just publish yeah. a few yeah. random books yeah. yes yeah. And, and I think that 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 uh, ethos has been picked up by so many other people who have been so successful as well and and I think the other thing though is to remember that it's not really a monolith one way or the other I mean because there's some indie press presses who are just trying to copy what the commercials presses are doing and there's a lot of brave editors at commercial houses that take chances on on very difficult work so um, a lot of times for our projects it's th it, it, there's this intel or discovery process of, of figuring out who are the best people to approach with a project and it doesn't necessarily skew towards indie press or large press it's just simply who are the individuals who who have enough holes in their head to take on some <laughs> of these projects <laughs> well, uh, now I, I do want to ask you about it's a good kind of crazy uh -huh. 
I, I do want to ask you about the, 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 the Predator book. T tell us about that, that project, because that, that was a fun book. I, I'm a big monster hound, so, you know, that worked for me totally. Thanks. I, I really love doing it. It's actually one of my, my favorite books in terms of just, it was the first book because I had just become a, a full-time writer um, that I actually got to sit down and do nothing but write a novel 24-7. And, and so it was, a, it was a delight to write. The thing that delighted me too was uh, subverting expectations because I'd come out with Shriek, which is this 60-year family chronicle with non-linear and you know with all kinds of flashbacks and unreliable narrators. So what do I do next? I do a Predator novel. <laughs> 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 and it, but but you know I like that because you know I, I have actually done short stories and stuff where I have a lot of action in them, and um, so it was a delight to do it. I still got to put some of my signatures in it. I learned a lot from doing it. And uh, it was funny because Brian Evanson, the creative writing director at Brown University, mm -hmm. is the guy who got me in on it because he was doing an Aliens novel. Mm -hmm. I think he was a little <laughs> afraid of what the reaction would be. It's like, hey, Jeff, you want to do one? So I thought we'll both go, we'll go, both go down <laughs> together. Um, and uh, it's kind of funny because our careers have been linked from the beginning when, when we were both f first started out in, in publishing. So it was kind of nice to have our books side by side, uh, you know. Dark Horse. Now, one thing I, I, that I that I really like about your work, Jeff, and, and Anne's too, are these absolutely uh, goofy anthologies you guys come up with. <laughs> I mean, they're just wonderful. I, I think they're they're so utterly inspired, obviously inspired. So tell us a little bit about Last Drink Birdhead. <laughs> okay, this this is purely 100% Jeff's idea. I mean, it's his oh, concept. Oh, you don't want any credit, no, do you? No, no, no. I mean, well, I mean, it was, it, it was an idea that, that sprang out of um, Jeff's head, but it, but, it, but it came, it was inspired by a piece of art from a good friend of ours. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to let Jeff tell you about that. But um, it was actually a, a, a piece called Last Drink Birdhead. Yeah, well, I mean, it actually came from, it, I, I actually blame the Thackeray T. Lambshead Pocket Guide to Eccentric and Discredited Diseases. Because mm -hmm. if we'd never done that book, I wouldn't have been thinking, oh, this odd phrase, that might be an anthology. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so we turned it into this charity anthology, and it was actually kind of an interesting kind of like guerrilla tactic that we did. Um, because we would send out the guidelines, and it would just the, the title would be Last Drink Birdhead, and then the guidelines would be, who or what is Last Drink Birdhead? Under 500 words for charity, you have two weeks. Do not ask further questions. Uh -huh. <laughs> and don't, most writers don't think just right. And most writers actually just they just sat down and they just started scribbling and they sent us something immediately. Mm -hmm. And most of the people who didn't send us something immediately wound up not not writing something because it really was like one of those kind of surrealist game writing prompts mm -hmm. where you just you know just and, 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 and so that's why it works so well is that they didn't think about it. Every single piece is in the writer's signature style, like the Caitlin Kernan piece. If you didn't have her name on it, you would know it's Caitlin Kernan. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's actually like great little samples of these writers' style. And Peter mm -hmm. Straub's, where he has a, uh, a, a town where the, all the fences have bird heads on the ridges um, of the <laughs> and whatnot. And, and he said he had a great time with it and actually took him out of a writer's block situation and whatnot. So, um, so yeah, but, uh, but sometimes these projects and... Uh, have a wider audience too, like the Thackeray T. Lambshead Guide, you know, which started out uh, being published by Nightshade, was published in the UK, was published in the US by major publishers. So we, we try not to limit and it's ourselves. Found, it's found in medical school libraries too. Yes, of course. Oh, good. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, we try not to deliver, uh, limit ourselves on those ideas because sometimes the craziest ones turn out to be the most successful. And, and you're working on some, uh, you've worked on a, a few multimedia products, projects with the band The Church, and, and I think that's really interesting to, to incorporate uh, music into your work. Well, it's kind of like a reciprocal thing, because I listen to music while I'm, while I'm uh, writing. 
and I was listening to the church a lot while I was uh, writing Shriek, and so uh, at the end it just seemed natural to see if they'd be willing to do that. And on the latest book, Finch, uh, Murder by Death, I've been listening to their stuff, a great Americana band um, that also uses like a cello and, and other things like that, so they have a very rich sound, kind of a desperado but rich sound. And, uh, and same thing, I, I, I emailed them and said, hey, would you be interested in doing a soundtrack? And we'll subsidize it by having the CD with the limited edition, but you can also sell it, sell it on your own. And uh, they came up with this just haunting piece that is so close to the music in my head while I was writing that it is uncanny. I mean, they even went out for one piece. There's actually a band listed in the book where it's like an underground party, like a, a black market party where it's illegal because there's a curfew. And so they have a band, but it's like a violin and, and some guy you know, beating on two trash can lids and some other instrument, I can't remember what it was, but homemade. They actually went out and they got two trash can lids for their drummer and they tried to replicate that sound. And it sounds exactly like I would imagine because I imagine the band is like being some kind of like a homemade band in Paris during the occupation during World War II. And it sounds exactly like that. It, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's uh, wonderful. Now, um, uh, one of the things also that I think that uh, you do quite well is to, um, you use the internet, and, and you talk about this in your book. Uh, talk about um, how the, what you wrote in book life has been how you've used it and how it has it snowballed on in your own mind I mean how are, you, how are you taking your own advice and going further with it I am actually I mean this book tour is a good example the way the book tour is being subsidized the the strategy behind the various um, venues it's not it's not just a book tour it's not just a five-week book tour it is actually setting me up for the next five years Mm. Um, and so that's one part of book life, and the second edition will be expanded based on my experience and how successful certain portions of this are. And certain strategy things that, 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 that I'm doing now with regard to the book tour that, that indicate like different ways to approach new media and, and, and get attention for your work in a good way. Um, I have to say that it's interesting to me that when we do the workshops, and I am doing some of these book life workshops, it's the goal setting that, that most of the writers don't seem to have thought about beyond, hey, I'm going to work on this book. And uh, one reason I, I, I talk about that, and even the last week of the Clarion Writers Workshop, where they've been there for five weeks and we're trying to get them out into the real world and, and kind of speed that transition, I, I have them set goals. Because the, the point of setting goals and being more organized as a writer is it actually frees up your creativity. Because in part, you have something to measure your, your progress against. If you don't set a goal, you, you have nothing to measure against, and so you're, you're continually frustrated by your supposed lack of progress. Whereas if you set sustainable goals, it kind of frees you up. If, if you know what you want, you know what you can say no to and what you should say yes to. And those types of things are very important to creativity because they, 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 take, they, they, they um, take away the stress and they also free up more time because you spend less time dithering on, on whether you should do something or what you should do. You know what you want to do and you know what supports that. So that's the most important part of the book as, I, as far as I'm concerned. But then it does go into new media and how you can, there, there's a weird thing going on in new media, which is it supports your creativity and your career. Like many times I've been on Facebook just messing around, which is what the fans like. I mean, it's kind of why they investigate my book sometimes. It's like, oh, there's Jeff acting crazy on Facebook. But, but also, you know, I, I wrote a story on Facebook, you know, that, that served a dual purpose. It was providing content to the fans, but it was also something that was creative and I couldn't have done it in a different format. Um, so it, the connect connectivity there is what interests me the most. 
Anne, are, are you taking any of Jeff's advice from book life in, with regards to weird tales? I don't know, because it's, it's completely <laughs> different. His, his book really is written for a writer's life. And I don't live, thank God, a writer's life. <laughs> I mean, I live it. with a writer, so I know <laughs> what they go through. Far. But actually, I think, though, that living with a writer and seeing the ups and downs and what, the, what he goes through, I think it makes me actually a better editor. And I think it's one of the reasons why a lot of people want to send their stories to me, because they know that it's going to be in good hands, and they know that I'm, I'm looking out for them, even if I don't take it. So in that sense, yes. And there's also, there are sections in there that he's got that I think are universal and it doesn't matter what your career is or what you're doing with your life, but of course the goal setting, everybody needs to do that. But some of the sections that he has in there about balancing your life, that's true for everybody. You know, make sure you, you eat right, you get exercise, this and that and the other. You have to have time for family and friends. You don't become a workaholic. I mean, that's universal. So yes, I think that there are a lot of things in his book that can be used by anyone in any discipline, but it is geared more towards um, the writing career. Well, the other thing too is you gotta remember that uh, Anne saw it through several drafts, and she was the one who would say, well, this is stupid, just take out this entire part. This part is too short, you need to do this. This isn't true, you don't actually do that. You think you do that, you don't do that. <laughs> so. <laughs> And, you know, he, he, he does work really hard to take his own advice. He doesn't always, but at least he recognizes when he's not. So, you know, it's a good thing. I've been speaking with Anne and Jeff Vandermeer. Jeff's latest book is Book Life. Anne is the editor of Weird Tales. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for Thank you us. for having us. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.